Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you, as always, for listening. I think we have a really great show to start off this new year. We have two of the most established, esteemed travel writers working today on the show as guests. They are Reed Bramblett, who just wrote our new version of the 10 best airfare search engines. And boy, oh boy, did he do an insane amount of work uh, to make sure that his advice was based on facts and based on numbers and based on statistics. He, he, he just did an incredible amount of work. And Thomas Swick, a longtime travel editor who just wrote a wonderful memoir. I have to start the show with a bit of a an apology, though. I use an app to to record when I'm recording with somebody who is in another place, so basically to record over the computer. And uh, recently, the app was quote unquote upgraded, but that upgrade turned out to be a downgrade. So every once in a while, it sounds almost like there are gremlins with very tinny voices echoing what I say. Uh, This is mostly a problem at the beginning of the second interview. It doesn't happen that often. I I hope you'll bear with it. It's it's not that bad. If it were, I would have re-recorded, although I'm worried about how to do so with this app. Uh, Anyway, uh, so my apologies in advance for for that. And uh, I hope you enjoy the show despite that technical snafu. All right, here we go. New year, new research. Every year we put up an article about the best websites for booking flights and we turn to the same expert and I have him on the line. He is Reed Bramblett. He does a hell of a lot of work for us each year, painstaking, I think sometimes painful work. Hey, Reed, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show, and thank you. Thank you, Pauline. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm thanking you not only for being here, but for going through this massive process. Let's let's start with the process so people understand why they should trust you. What are you looking at when you're comparing these flight search engines? Well, I look at the top 15 that are out there, and I try to figure out which are the top 10, and for reasons why. Right. And to do that, uh, there's really two aspects to it. One is looking at all of the bells and whistles, the kind of filters they have, the kind of information they provide, uh, the kind of third-party booking sites that they're using. But of course, the main thing is I look at how well they perform on price. I mean, can they find the cheapest tickets to get you from point A to point B? Right. I just have a lot of A's and a lot of B's. <laughs> <laughs> so you look at last minute tickets, you look at apex fares, which are those done three months in advance. You look mm-hmm. at the common uh, or the, the more popular hubs. You look at more obscure hubs. But you also did something that I thought was really smart. You don't factor in the flights that nobody would ever want to take, right? Right. I basically have come up with the rule of thumb that if the layover period is more than the length of the flight, uh, you shouldn't be taking that flight. <laughs> That's not only not worth the savings. Right, um, right. I also, I tend to only go with ones with one plane change unless it's absolutely necessary to connect 
say, some regional hub in the middle of one country to a regional hub in the other country. Sure. Okay. And interestingly enough, probably the most famous name uh, in terms of search came in in last place. Well, not in last place, because, you know, it, that then it wouldn't even be on our list of the top 10. But it came in in the 10th spot. What is that one? Well, it is one that you'd expect to do really well at searching everything on the internet, and that is Google. Yeah. Um, especially since they bought a number of years ago, 10, 12 years ago at this point, uh, a, an in-house software service that travel agents used to use to find airfares. So they had a, a good running start at it, but they just couldn't put up the numbers. I mean, they found flights everywhere, but it was rarely a even average price and often was the worst price that was found. Sometimes other websites found that same pretty crummy price, but you know, they found it more often than most. Now they did do some things well. They're they're the fastest of the group, right? Well, yeah. Like you start typing in a, a, a new date or a new airline, you know, destination, and it starts doing the results before you even finish typing the name of the city. Uh, it's a quite impressive that part of it. Yeah, but other than that, maybe not. Maybe don't use it for airfares, uh, which which is uh, I think going to come as a shocker to many listeners. Now, many years ago. Priceline and its competitor Hotwire kind of uh, threw the consumer way of booking travel a loop in that it it put out these opaque airfares where you didn't know what you were flying, you didn't quite know what time of day you were flying, but you got a great, great rate. I was stunned to read from your article that Hotwire has gotten out of that game. It doesn't do that anymore. Priceline is still in it. Are those types of kind of, I don't know, mystery tickets still worth booking? Well, as you said, Hotwire very quietly did away with its opaque airfares. You do know the time of day. You know if it's morning, afternoon, or evening flight. You just don't know the precise time. And if there are multiple airports in your area, the airport you're leaving from either. <laughs> um, so you don't know if it's going to be LaGuardia or Newark or JFK if you're in New York City. Priceline still has it. They call it express deals. Um, and you know right off the bat that you're getting one where it's slightly blind. You know, you just know the time of day and the two cities you're connecting. Um, and you can save money. They say up to 40%, which can happen on occasion, but it's usually more along the lines of, of 10 to 15%. Now you say 10 to 15%. Is that 10 to 15% compared with all of the other uh, search engines, in- including our number one, which we'll reveal in a couple of minutes? Ah, I would say it's 10 to for 15% compared to the other prices that Priceline finds Ah. Um, when you're doing the actual date. And they are in the middle of the pack. Uh, They ranked number six this year. Right, right. So actually, I should say they're up from number 13 last year. So they've done a lot of good work uh, on finding their airfares, but they're still sort of, you know, middle of the road. Now, I thought this was fascinating. A uh, one with, I always thought it was an off-putting name, uh, but Cheapo Air didn't win overall. It's not the cheapoest for all flights, but for last minute fares, they did the best, right? Absolutely. This was something, I love a good story like that, that yeah. you know, we have our top three websites and none of them can find the cheapest airfare. You have to go to this strangely named cheap O air. I mean, sometimes in apex, as you said, the advanced purchase flights, uh, it can get slight number or at least costs that are average or a little worse than average. But when it comes to last-minute airfares, leaving, like, say, this coming weekend, 
let's other websites found the best cost on a plane ticket to leave, say Friday to go on a you know last minute trip, maybe once. A few found it twice. Cheapoware did it six times. Huh? In all of my uh, in my searches. So if you're looking for a last minute ticket, I would go to Cheapoware first. Interesting. And our last year's winner, which was Skyscanner, dropped to second place. Wah, wah. <laughs> it's still my, it's the one I tend to go to, I got to say. And But they have some nice bells and whistles, like the Explore Everywhere option. What is that? Well, Explore Everywhere, one thing they do let you be very flexible with their, their, their um, itineraries. So you can say, I would like to go anywhere from my home airport, and it'll let you know what's the price to go pretty much anywhere you want to go. You get, you get sort of a, a little like playing card screen of all sorts of lovely cities or destinations you can go to and a little price underneath each picture of the destination. So you know, hey, if I want to go to Las Vegas or I want to go to Paris or Orlando or Tokyo, this is how much it's going to cost roughly. Right. And so you can you can choose a destination based on cost. That's something that Google does as well and one other search engine, uh, right? Is it the winner that does that too? Well, off the top of my head, there is one other one that does okay. it. Okay. Well, it's it in the article. You can go to yes, Frobers.com. The other thing they do is they vet unfamiliar OTAs. I think we need to explain what an OTA is before we go any further. Right. Well, there are basically two types of websites you're looking at out there. We include both in the article. One is an aggregator, which is what Skyscanner is. And it looks at all the websites out there that are selling tickets. And it puts all that data together and presents it to you. An OTA just means online travel agent. So it's a virtual version of the old travel agent. And those are the ones that sell you tickets directly. Right. So a lot of those are pretty established and pretty well known. And um, like some of them that you might find that uh, the names that you know are Priceline, which we've talked about before. Sure. The OTA, the one you'd buy for, or Cheapo Air, you buy from them directly. Now, some of them are very reputable. Some of them are not quite as reputable. So one thing that Skyscanner does that our number one does as well is give you a rating of the various um, online travel agencies so that you'll know right off the bat whether or not other people have found them trustworthy. Of course, if it's someplace you've never heard of before, definitely go to the Better Business Bureau online and check them out. Google the name of it with the word scams or legit or something like that. And keeping in mind that everyone's going to have you know, a complaint about every company. But because <laughs> sure. uh, people don't go online usually to rant and to rave about how great it was. They go on yeah. to rant about the problem that they had. Uh, so, But if you see one company that seems to come up with the same complaint time and time again, that's probably something you got to worry about. And they also have another, uh, I think, particularly nice feature, which is that you can see the estimated prices for the entire month around your travel date. So if you can be at all flexible, uh, that that's a really good thing to be able to see. Yes. I and think. to be fair, many of the uh, sites do that. Um, they either show you uh, the prices or they show you a price range, like whether it's you know $1 sign or $3 sign you know, color-coded uh, calendar, so you'll see, oh, it's cheaper to fly on Friday than it would be on Saturday. Um, now, this is just sort of a, a guess based on trends because they're not going to look up every single price for a two-month scan and give it to you right away. But it is a good indication of at least when the cheaper day to fly. And sometimes you can save yourself hundreds of dollars just by altering itinerary a day or on either end. Right, right, yeah. No, amazing. All right, now, drum roll. 
we have the winner. And it is actually a composite winner of, of two companies that people think are of a separate. So who is the winner this year? The winner this year is Momondo. <laughs> Slash kayak. Slash kayak. Um, it turns out I was doing my due diligence and at a certain point I thought, these numbers look exactly the same. <laughs> and I did a lot more digging and thought, aha, they have now married the search engines of Momondo and Kayak together. And if you go to either site, you get the same exact results. Uh, this is the case for a lot of these companies that are sort of the same company, the same parent company like Travelocity, Orbitz, and uh, Expedia. That's all the same company. Right. Um, and frankly, none of them made the list this year. But um, they have the same one. I gave the edge to Momondo uh, partly because it doesn't lead with an ad, a sponsored result. Mm -hmm. And also, as you said, it is quite tedious and they have a nice white on black background. And it was much easier on the eyes uh, huh. <laughs> than right. kayak. Look at that screen, and uh, it had a lot of really neat features that a lot of other websites didn't have. Well, tell us about those. Well, one that you just have to know to click on it to get is phenomenal. It's called Fair Insights, and you click on that and you get a little pop up, and it's various graphs and charts, and it's showing the price trends over time for any pair of cities that you choose, like your home city and the place you want to go to from. Philadelphia to Rome, which is what I would do. Uh, and it shows you the cheapest months, the cheapest times of day, the cheapest carriers that go back and forth. Wow. It gives you a sense of the, how much the overall ticket's going to cost from the highest cost to the lowest cost, you know, depending on the season or whatever. And it tells you how far in advance you should book that particular city pair to get the cheapest rate. It's kind of like having a virtual travel agent right there who knows all this information. That's That's pretty amazing. It also allows you to filter things that I didn't even know people would want to filter for, like the type of plane, correct? Yes. Most places, uh, most websites allow you to filter things on, you know, three to eight different uh, categories like price, obviously, time that you leave, uh, airports, number of stopovers usually. They have 13 ways you can filter your results. <laughs> and yes, I thought airfares, I put that in the article because I thought, not airfares, but type of aircraft was the most sort of obscure uh, thing yeah. to look at. But the one filter that they do have that only two other websites had on our on our um, our survey here was that they allow you to add checked bags and that changes the cost real time on the results. Because as you know, if you a lot of airlines now say if you want to take a checked bag, it's fifty bucks. Right. Yeah, I love hundred dollars. And that's not just one way, that's each way. So Adding those in really allows you to compare apples to oranges and not apples to kumquats when you don't know whether or not, you know, a, a fare on an airline that includes baggage or has much cheaper baggage fares is going to be like if you, some of these low cost airlines will charge you nickel and dime you for everything, your seat selection, your carry on bag, everything. You can put all that into the final results at Momondo and really see the final cost you're going to pay. I love that. I think that's amazing. And you also note that they're not that they're kind of now a hybrid. Were they the only uh, site that you looked at that is both an online travel agency and an aggregator? No, there are others that are offering tickets directly as well. They're partnering with um, third-party uh, OTAs, as we said. Uh, and but I found that Momondo does it the most transparently and honestly. A few of the ones I looked at, and especially some that didn't make the top ten. <laughs> The, uh, the OTAs they'd partnered with are kind of dicey. They're a little shady. Uh, they don't always have the best reputations. Whereas um, the one Momondo partners with does, uh, the two that it does. And it also, you have to turn that feature on 
So it's not like it's the results are peppered with all of these, hey, book this fair. You know, they're not trying mm-hmm. to sell you on it necessarily right. unless you opt in. Right. Interesting. And we should note before we leave this whole topic is Southwest can't be searched. So its results won't show up on any of these sites, right. the if winner or the loser. Or to the Caribbean now, uh, you definitely should be looking at Southwest. When I was talking about the idea of how much you know it charges for for baggage, I was thinking, well, Southwest doesn't. And that's people complain right. about the cattle call as like a flying bus, which it is. But these days, every other airline nickels and dimes you for the seat selection Anyway, so, you know, on Southwest, you just have to get up and, and hope you don't get a middle seat, but you save a lot of money, you get free luggage, you get free snacks, and the change fees are low to nothing. Yeah, well, it's a great article as always. And next week, your article on the best search engines for hotels will be coming out. Uh, so go to fromers.com to read them both. And uh, thank you so much, Reed, for appearing on the Fromers Travel Show. My pleasure, Pauline. Our next guest is Thomas Swick. He has a terrific new book out. It's called Falling Into Place, a story of love, Poland, and the making of a travel writer. Hey, Thomas, so nice to speak with you. Hi, Pauline. Good to talk to you. And I got to say, you have perhaps the best forward writer uh, in the history of forward writers, you got Pico Iyer to write it. And he starts the book out by saying that he's not sure whether this is a travel memoir or a love story uh, or what the book is. You, you must have approved this forward. What do you think the book is? Well, I think the book is a travel memoir with the emphasis on memoir. It does tell three separate stories, well, not separate stories, three interconnected stories. The main story is a coming-of-age story about my youthful travels and um, my development as a writer. Right. And then there's the geopolitical story, because in those travels, the country I spend the most time in, two and a half years, is Poland. And those years were the late 70s and the early 80s. And when everything was happening, Poland was really on the front page of, of newspapers around the world in those days. So there's that, that story as well. And, you know, for listeners who may not be aware of the uh, of history, that, that was really the beginning of the end of communism right. in Eastern Europe, the Solidarity yeah. Movement, which started in 1980. So there's the geopolitical story. And then there's the love story. I went to Poland because I'd met a Polish woman. We met in London in 1976. She came to Trenton, New Jersey, where I was working for the Trenton Times and stayed for 10 months and we fell in love. And she had to go back to finish her studies at the University of Warsaw. And I followed after her. And being a writer... Uh, a lot of the book is about your tangling with the Polish language. Uh, this is something that you study, it's, it seems like, from the book for years, and yet it, it keeps <laughs> defeating you. Uh, tell our listeners, why is Polish so damn hard to learn? Mm. Well, it's an inflected language. So it, it's like Latin. If anybody's ever studied Latin, there are different cases, uh, instrumental, nominative, genitive. As a, which it means that words change depending on how they're used in the sentence. And the example I use in the book is the word for dog, 
which is like the French word pièce. It's pronounced like the French word, spelled P-I-E-S. Uh -huh. But if you if you say you have a dog, it becomes psa. And if you uh -huh. go for a walk with your dog, it's psen. So, you know, it's almost like you have to learn not just the word for something, but all its variations, depending on how you're going to use it in a sentence. So that makes it difficult. Right. And the other thing, which anyone who has ever seen written Polish has noticed, there seems to be a shortage of vowels. Um, <laughs> it's a language I call them alphabet ending consonant clots. You just get a lot of S and Zs and CZs and sometimes four of them together, which makes it kind of a tongue twister of a language. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the first six, I was in Poland for the first time for six months and I made no progress with Polish at all. <laughs> but right. then I went back, as I said, just as Solidarity was starting in 1980 and I stayed for two years. And my goal was to learn Polish as quickly as possible because people were reading the newspapers, having intense discussions. And I, I wanted to know what, what was happening, what people were talking about. So right. I made a concerted effort to learn Polish. And after two years, I, I, could, I, could, uh, yeah, I could have a conversation right. and get but by. When, yeah. so, so the language was the first barrier. But this is, was also a very different culture, and that's part of the pleasure of reading the book, is, is you untangling the culture. Uh, your, your then girlfriend visits your family, and unlike in the U.S., where you never talk about religious religion and politics, that's all she wants to talk about. And so it, it's this clash of cultures that, that you see b between folks. How else is, is Poland different from the American culture, would you say? What are, what are some other interesting ways? I think a major one is, is in terms of the way we look at life. I mean, Americans tend to be optimistic. Hmm. I think of myself as optimistic. And, you know, when Solidarity started that, that August of 1980, and I, I arrived and I found out that the school where I was teaching already had a Solidarity chapter. Hmm. And I, I wanted to join it. Because I just thought, well, this is this is wonderful what's happening. And I thought, well, it's just going to get progressively better. And Hanya warned me not to join because she said if, if solidarity is, is crushed, you're going to get deported. Huh. And so she was already foreseeing a bad ending, which right. actually happened in December of 1981 when martial law was declared. So I think Poles, and it's understandable when you look at their history, they, they don't believe in happy endings um, <laughs> the way Americans and our movies have, have yeah. taught us to do. Yeah. So I think that's a major thing. And it was fascinating because you went back to Poland knowing that Lech Walesa was, was really trying to foment change in Gdansk and, the, and you were very excited about it. But it was fascinating to read about what it was like to live in a place where, where such radical things were happening and people were trying to reshape the society. I mean, it, it became as basic as, as not having enough food, right? I mean, what was it like to be in Poland during that time? Well, it was incredibly intense. Um, I, as I say in the book, I, for years, basically since college, I'd kept a, a journal. But in Poland, it became a diary. I mean, every day I had something to write about. Just life took on an intensity that I had never experienced before and I've never experienced since. Huh. Um, every little thing seemed to be imbued with meaning. 
and it was an incredibly exciting time. As I say, there were intense discussions. Uh, the teachers at the school where I was teaching, they were all Polish, um, were just really, everybody was excited and, and um, involved, engaged in, in right. what was happening. But at the same time, materially, life was very difficult. There were shortages, a lot of shortage. We started getting ration cards. I mean, I'd, I'd heard about things like this, but, you know, from World War II. Sure. But this was 1980, and at school, every month we got ration cards for meat and sugar and butter. Um, and, you know, there were long lines uh, outside the shops. And again, for an American, this was, this was um, a shock. This is okay. not how we are used to, um, yeah. to living. So being a travel writer, this isn't, Poland isn't the only place you write about. And uh, you, you spend one chapter in Greece, Greece, but the only part of Greece that is cold <laughs> rather than hot. <laughs> and uh, at one point, you're invited for a Greek Easter celebration. And I just thought your whole discussion about the goat and the goat head blew my mind. Can, can you talk about why people love goat heads and, and what they do with them at this feast? Well, the, the, the feast that I was part of was, um, was uh, at the home of a, a, a Greek-born uh, but an English, English guy and his, right. his girlfriend. And he specifically asked not to have the, um, the head right. included with our goat. And his, it's funny, his girlfriend was a vegetarian, so she didn't have oh. any of the goat. And I, I wasn't that crazy about the, the, even just the, the goat meat itself, but just the... The whole Easter, Greek Easter, you know, Easter in Greece is is like, I don't know, Christmas in um, Sweden or someplace. It's just, it's the big, big holiday. Hmm. And you, you you see lambs on the, uh, you know, on the roadsides and it just seems like a, a country for, 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 fit for Easter. Then the midnight service in the, in the Orthodox Church was quite a... Uh, yeah, but you, you write about the fact that if you had taken the goat head, it would have been in the center of the table, kind of like a centerpiece. Yeah, well, that's a story. Yeah, that's a story a friend of mine who married a Greek had told me that when she first went to his his family's for dinner, uh, that the Greek, the goat head was sitting in the center, and then the the mother opened it and put the brains in everybody's soup. And because my friend was the guest of honor, she got an eyeball. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, absolutely fascinating. Well, and, and in the book you also tangle with, I mean, you know, I guess it, it, there's something in travel writing now. You're not supposed to use the word exotic because it's considered uh, a colonial mindset. And you talk in the book a little bit about becoming a travel writer and how the hard journalists kind of look down on this type of, of journalism. And yet you felt that doing the hard news or, or doing the articles on, I don't know, uh, town, town council meetings and other short events, that you were writing about something fleeting. And but by turning to feature articles and by turning to travel, uh, it might have longer legs, what you wrote. Is that a fair way of saying what you say in the book? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, news stories have no lasting value. I mean, they, the news stories just kind of live for a day and then 
are are supplanted by the next new, day's news stories. But you know, good writing, feature writing, um, travel writing, particularly, it's it's different. It's nuanced. It's atmospheric. It's illuminating about a culture. The best of it is, right. and you know, it has a chance to 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 live on to still be read and enjoyed years after it was written. Um, I mean, some of my favorite travel books are books from the 30s and 40s and 50s because they, they capture a place and a time that, you know, that, that news stories just can't do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think you've done the same in this book. So thank many you. congratulations and, and thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. Watching cable.